Today's reading is Revelation 1, 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Man, that trivia was fun. Golly. All right. Well, hey, it is great to be with you. My name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And I grew up watching college football. Correction. Actually, real quick. Correction. I grew up watching my Uncle John yell at the TV when the Ohio State Buckeyes uh, played on TV. And, and listen, that was an education in more than just football. I had a broader vocabulary as a teenager <laughs> watching my Uncle John yell at the TV. And I remember, listen, when you, if you grew up anywhere near central Ohio, there's only one thing that happened during football season on Saturdays, and it was the game. And I remember one, one Saturday, the Ohio State Buckeyes defeated their rival, a team that shall not be named, but I'll say it because some of you may not know, Michigan. And so they defeated them as they have actually for quite a few years. It's just been pretty pathetic for Michigan. Anyway, they defeated them. And then the next Sunday, I remember coming to church and I remember looking up into the second row and there was one of like the famous linebackers from the Ohio State University sitting right there. And I thought to myself a couple things. One, I didn't know these guys went to church after such a significant game. I was blown away by this guy's commitment. And then two, I was blown away he came to my church. I was like, man, our church must be pretty cool. We weren't. He was just a really nice guy, and that was really great. But it transformed the way I saw my church. The way you could imagine it kind of in the Kansas City context is if Patrick Mahomes, who's a confessing Christian, were to walk in this door like right now. What would you do? You know, listen, you know, you'd, you'd look at me and you'd probably say to your blue in the face, I'll play it cool. I wouldn't do anything. But you know you try to get a selfie or at least like one of those like awkward selfies. Like you're trying not to get it. You're just like, ah, like and then he's over in the background <laughs> trying to get it. You're going to post that and be like, dude, Patrick Mahomes came to my church. It would change the way you saw your church. It changed the way you approached your church. There's something really special when special guests show up, Right? Well, now I want to ask this question. What if, what if when we were just kind of gathering together, reading God's word or singing 
praises to our great king, suddenly Jesus showed up. Like we're just talking about Jesus, we're learning from Jesus, and he walks in. How would you respond? Or better yet, like what would you, what do you think he would say? What do you think he would say to you? What do you think he would say to us? What word would he have for us? Well, the beautiful reality is that this isn't just an imaginative excursion. You see, in the first century when Jesus came and he walked on the earth and he lived the perfect life and then he died on the cross and then three days later he rose again, people, hundreds of people said they experienced the resurrected Jesus and that he ascended up into heaven and he said he was going to come back again. And the apostle John, the one who's recording this revelation here, is someone who walked with Jesus, who experienced Jesus. And he's actually imprisoned on an island, somewhere in between Greek and Turkey, the island of Patmos. And he's there because he was proclaiming this amazing news of what God has done through Jesus this world over. And it's confronting the culture. And it's totally chafing against the broader power structures of the day. And so they imprison him on this island because he wouldn't keep quiet as he talked about Jesus, his friend, his Lord, his God. And while he's there on the island of Patmos, he's worshiping. He's actually, it's on the Lord's Day. Later on in John, or Revelation chapter 1 we read, it's on the Lord's Day, it's on Sunday. He's worshiping Jesus. And he's recentering his life on Jesus. And while he's there being led by the Spirit, holding fast to his God, suddenly Jesus shows up. And he's got words to say. And he speaks specifically to seven local churches across Turkey, broader Asia Minor. And those words that he has for those seven churches are now words for every church thereafter. They're words for you and me today. So what's at the main, what's at the center of this message, of this revelation? The main theme is Nike, right? Nike, okay? Some of you are like, Gabe, I know you love running, but this is a weird product placement. No, in reality, this Greek word, Nike, is the word for victory. And this word, Nike, victory, shows up here in the book of Revelation more than any other book in the Bible. Because here, Jesus is speaking to those who are following him. He's seeking to point where history is going. And where history is going, where people are trying to wrestle, to hold fast to their faith, to hold fast to the Jesus who died, who rose again, who said he's going to come again, is don't give up and don't give in. I'm going to win in the end. If you want to know where history is going, it's with me on top. So hold on. And this story of victory is sent out to these churches. And the picture in which John paints, and the way in which John paints this picture, is a lot more like Salvador Dali and less like Rembrandt. You see much more imagery and, and these beautiful pictures rather than explicit detail. There's something beautiful going on, and it's written in apocalyptic fashion as well as prophetic fashion, and it's all contained in a letter. It's all contained in a letter. So if you've been with us, to kind of give us a little bit of roadmap, if you've been with us, we've been walking through Genesis, right? It had narrative. It had dialogue. When you're reading it, you're seeing a story unfold. If you read the book of Revelation the same way you read Genesis, you're going to be lost. You have to come with different tools because it's a different type of literature. The same way when you come to the Kansas City Star, 
You read it differently than you would maybe a Billy Collins poem. Different imagery, different tools, different expectations. So what do we mean by apocalyptic? Actually, this English word revelation there, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1, is this Greek word apocalypsis. Okay, so apocalyptic literature. What is this apocalyptic literature? It's this unveiling of reality as the world actually is and the way that God's actually working in the world that we rarely get to see. It's prophetic and that we get to see where the world is going. And what God's going to be doing. It's a forecast of where he's taking everything. So we can join in with him. And it's all contained in this letter. Written to real churches. In real places. With real people. And so we come to a story of victory. That's unveiling a whole reality that we're rarely given glimpse to. As to where God's going to take the world. And how he's actually bringing his real people you and I today, and listen, we need this revelation now just as much as they needed it in the first century. In a context where more and more people think that gathering in Jesus' name, learning about Jesus, or being a part of a church broadly is a waste of time, we need to remember that Jesus is worth it. We need to remember that his church is worth it, that he will win, that this is a good bet and investment of your time, and not to give in nor to give up on the faith that we've been entrusted for over 2,000 years, that Jesus will come back. I need to hear that. We need to hear that. Now, whenever you come to the book of Revelation, whether you've been in the church for decades or you've just been back in the church for a few days, when you come to the book of Revelation, there's a ton of questions, right? Like one right off the top of my head is, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Another one is like, what's up with all these angels? A third is when you get to the rest of chapter one, like who's Jesus's wardrobe designer? Like all these questions, there's a lot going on here and we're not going to be able to answer all of them for some reason because part of these answers God hasn't given us. But also because there are a ton of questions when it comes to the book of Revelation. And here's the question we will begin to unpack. And really, this is the journey that we're going to be unpacking over these next eight weeks together. And here's the question we're going to seek to under, un, unpack. How, how do we become a church that makes it till the end? A church that when Jesus shows up, we're ready. What does it look like for us to be a church for the end of the world? That's the name of our series. Expecting Jesus to show up such that if he did walk through these doors and he looked at you and me, he would say, well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that our longing? Isn't that our hope? So how do we get there? How do we get there? Well, over the next Eight weeks, we're going to look at these first three chapters of Revelation. These first three chapters of Revelation where Jesus is, and this is such a unique space in all of Scripture, where Jesus literally dictates a letter to John to these churches. To speak as to what it looks like in every one of the churches is meant to read every other, the ch every other church's mail. So it's not like, oh, you get this and it's closed and it's only for you. No, everybody gets to look in on each other's mail because all of these letters are meant for all of us. And sharpening us and growing us. And whether you're skeptical of all of this, or maybe you're started to become jaded with church, or maybe you're just tired, or, or maybe, if you're anything like me, I just need to be reminded, what does Jesus have in mind 
when it comes to his church. I mean, there's a lot of different concepts for church out there. What do we want church to be? That's not the point of church. The point of church is what does its founder, its author, and its leader, Jesus, want church to be because that's where life is. And so we get to find and begin a journey of unpacking that from Jesus' point of view and such an amazing, amazing opportunity here in God's word. So where do we begin? What does it look like to be a church for the end of the world? Well, today we're going to consider three things that we need to be, we need to be willing to do together, okay? So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles all the way to the end, to the book of Revelation. We've been hanging out in Genesis. I'm sure there's some nice creases and stuff in that, sh- that book. Now we're going to go to the other end, uh, the book of Revelation. And while you're turning there, I think we can all agree that churches get into big trouble when they speculate, right? I don't know. It doesn't take but a quick Google search to see when churches, when particular church leaders speculated the particular time, the particular week, the particular day, when quote-unquote Jesus was going to return, right? Speculation, it's just weird. It gets us into trouble. And frankly, every time Jesus talks about it, he calls it a waste of time. That's not what we're supposed to be about with our time. We're to be ready for when he returns, whenever he chooses to come back. That's the call of the Christian. Readiness, not speculation. And yet we love to speculate. And not just actually about the time of Jesus' return. We love to speculate like, you know what? If Jesus came back today, he probably wouldn't say all those same things he said back then. We love to speculate how Jesus would be so much different if he stepped into our culture versus stepping into the first century. We love to say, you know what? If Jesus showed up today, he would never say that. That's so outdated. If Jesus showed up today, there's no way he would ever say that. that. That just doesn't fit the culture. Jesus would cave. He would fit into our cultural makeup and really make it shine. And he would have this amazing crowd and everybody would. Where do we see that? Says who? You see, that sort of speculation is just as crazy as trying to plan your vacation around a doomsday meteor shower. There's just no framework for it other than your own experience. And frankly, our own experience can way, way too often lead us astray. Here's what's so beautiful that we see right off of these first couple verses in the book of Revelation. Is that God has taken the initiative to communicate to you and to me. Like God has taken the initiative to communicate his will. To actually pursue us. And what the church needs to be doing, way less than speculation is we just need to hear Jesus out. We need to hear Jesus out. Look with me here. Verse 1. We see the revelation of Jesus Christ. I like the way the NIV captures the Greek here and translates John's intention. And nearly a lot of other translations do it this way. The revelation from Jesus Christ. Jesus is revealing reality. He's showing us the way the world works. Not just the way the world worked in the first century, but the way that God works in the world. The same God who is over all time, who's working throughout time to bring about his purposes at the end of time. This is our God. The revelation from Jesus Christ. Keep reading on. God gave him to show his servants. God gave this to show us. That we might know. You continue to read on. 
He made it known. Like God has not only given this through Jesus for us, he's given this as a gift, he's made it known, and then he does so through angels and through people. And we see it recorded here before us. What an amazing gift of God's initiative to make his will known to us for faith and godliness. We've been given brilliant insight into God's mind and his heart. And then we get to verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Nowhere is there a caveat that says, you know what, those who keep it in the first century. Because, you know, in the 21st century, things are going to be so different. Woo, you know, that's going to be, this is super tough. No, there's no caveat. For God's people throughout time, until Jesus returns, these words have authority and become the pathway to blessing for you and for me. We far too often believe the lie of progress here in Western culture. It's such a culturally informed way of looking at the world. And this is what the lie of progress communicates to us. Newer is better, period. Newer is better is the water in which we swim, which is why when we heard that iPhone 11 came out, we instantly assume what? It's better than iPhone X, right? Like all of a sudden it's like, it's going to be better. And somehow I've got to organize my budget to get the upgrade because it's going to be better. Newer is better, period. Because everything's getting better. People are getting smarter. We're getting this all figured out way better than they did back in 2000. They didn't, you know, back in first century, they didn't understand anything. Like, no, we got, we got scientific improvement. We've got technological advancement. We know better than they did back there because newer is better. And it's the lie of progress. Because here's the deal. The good life, the life of blessing, it's a lot more like a fine wine than it is an iPhone. You know, when you're talking with someone with, about who loves and is a good connoisseur of wine, what do they talk about? They don't talk about newer is better. They talk about specific years. Oh, you got that bottle of wine? Oh, 1985. That was a good year, right? Half the time I have no idea what they're talking about. But, you know, at least when they're talking about this, like 1985, that's a good year. You want to get back to that time when all the different processes, the right weather came together to make something beautiful that they can't reproduce in the future. Newer isn't necessarily better. And the good life isn't something novel that's yet to be discovered. It's something ancient, as we saw in the book of Genesis, that needs to be rediscovered. The good life, it's not something where we come with grand innovation. Instead, the good life, the life of blessing, the life that, that Christ longs to give us, the eternal life that he longs to give you and me is something we keep. Do you see that in the text? You hear it. And you keep it. It's not like you're constantly innovating it. Trying to figure out how it's going to get better tomorrow. Once we get more information. You see, Jesus Christ, he wants to show us what he's doing in the world today. What he's been doing in the world up to this point and where he's taking the world. He wants to put us on the path towards Blessing, this good life, that doesn't mean a life without suffering, that doesn't mean, you know, health and wealth. I'm not saying that, but he does say, follow me and you find rich life. And if you follow me, you're going to be on the right side of history because once again, Nike, I have the victory. This is where history is heading, is with me and where I am going and where I am directing the world. 
We need to hear Jesus out. You know, as a pastor, I get the amazing opportunity to sit across from so many folks in the moments of some of their deepest pain. And I want to be very transparent. I think the most, most pain in our lives comes not because we haven't somehow figured out or speculated what Jesus might want to do in our lives. Most pain in our lives is because we haven't heard what Jesus has already said. Jesus has given us so much in terms of clarity. Sure, there are gray areas, to be sure, but he's given us so much. And most of the pain in our life is because we closed our ears to what Jesus has already spoken. God's taken this amazing initiative to speak, to reveal, to make it known to us. But we don't even want to go there. Now, I know we're full of really respectable folks, really good folks. Actually, I like Nearly all of you. <clears throat> Nearly. No. And I know for a fact none of us would hear, none of us in here would say, you know what, listen, I don't want to hear Jesus out. Like, that's ridiculous, right? Like, you're here because you're trying to hear Jesus out. But the reality is, the reality is when you look at your daily schedule, how full, how busy, how crammed does that become with other priorities that you never have the space to hear Jesus out? To hear Jesus out, you have to have a space where he speaks. And to have a space where he's speaking, you've got to make him a priority. When you think about your own life, your daily schedule, is there a space where you're hearing Jesus out? Where you're diving into his word and his word is speaking to you? What God has taken the initiative to reveal and to make known, are you letting it speak to you afresh daily? And then think about our weeks. We get so busy. We get so full. And frankly, when Sunday rolls around, it's not that we don't want to be here. It's that our lives are so full, we're too exhausted to even make it to church because we had so many other priorities that took over. Where the church is meant to be a community centered on the word of God, proclaiming what God has revealed as it continues to speak in your life and mine. You see, on these pages, we are revealed Jesus' heart, his mind, his will for your life and mine. And it requires some deep listening, spaces for study, a diverse community. Not because the truth is not inherent in the text. There is truth in this text, but we need people from different life situations and cultures to help us see the beautiful truth that is anchored in the text, that is the author's intent. And then we see that God has gifted the church with certain people like pastors and teachers and evangelists and so on. The Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians 3. Why? To point us back to what God has revealed to teach it so that in Ephesians chapter 3, we might grow into maturity and so reflect Jesus to the world. This is the point of the church, coming back to what God has revealed, not speculating on what he might have done. It's here that we find guidance on how to fo follow Jesus that is still better than anything else or new that has continued to be revealed. It's here that if we just stop, we can hear even Jesus speak because these are Jesus' words. 
because he's entrusted these men, the apostles, the authority on heaven and earth, and he's entrusted them with that. So when they spoke and they wrote and the church affirmed this, they come with the authority of Jesus. And when we approach these words, we not only hear Jesus speak, we encounter Jesus himself. Because when we deny these words, we don't deny words, we deny a king, his edict that goes over his people. And listen, this morning, what we need is we need to encounter Jesus, don't we? So number two, not only do we need to hear Jesus out, we need to see Jesus for who he says he is. I think we live, you know, one thing that's beautiful about our culture is we say, hey, listen, you can't define someone else. But we do that with Jesus all the time. We come up, you know, and we, we look at the apostles as they experienced, they walked and talked with Jesus. And they're like, listen, 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 listen. That's not what Jesus was like. He wasn't like this. I know that they walked with him. I know they talked with him. I know they experienced the resurrected Jesus. But that's not what Jesus is like. You can take out this part of scripture. You can take out this. Because you know what? That doesn't matter. Let me tell you who Jesus is like. Whoa. We want to define Jesus in a box that fits us. But that is not the way we approach Jesus. We need to let Jesus and see Jesus for who he says he is. Listen, churches have hurt people throughout history and caused significant wounds. And I want to be very clear. Jesus is going to start talking to some churches, and he's going to be talking to us. And there are a lot of reasons churches fail people. And I want to say church size dynamics isn't, isn't the reason. You could be a really small church, and that doesn't mean you got things right because we're small, because we're faithful, and the rest of the world hates us. No. You could be a really large church and be like, look, God's given us the increase. It's because we got everything right. No. We know this in the world of business. There are small businesses that are really small and will stay small because they're terrible at their job. And then there are really big businesses that are really big, not because they're really good for a community. They can actually be carrying out really unjust practices and destroying a community but still creating a profit. Size does not define success. Jesus defines success, and he has some clear parameters. And here are two reasons. Today I just want to quickly hit two reasons why churches fail people, okay? The first one. First reason that churches fail people is they don't help people see Jesus for who he says he is. We are a people centered on Jesus. Period. What he has done. I love the way Peter Berger brilliantly defines the church. The church is basically a community that marches around a box and says he is risen. <laughs> we are anchored in something that has transformed the world, the resurrection of Christ. And who he is and what he has done that's transformed the world, it gives us a new window on reality. And when churches fail people, it's because they do not help people see Jesus for who he says he is. Pastors and leaders begin to go speculating on what Jesus might have said or could have said or should have said if he entered into our culture. But the only thing they craft is a counterfeit Jesus that leads people down a path of brokenness, holding on to a God that doesn't exist. And that will fail people in the end. The only one who can save us is the real Jesus. And the only real Jesus is the one who defines himself. So who is this Jesus? <laughs> Let's look together, shall we? Verse 4. Verse 4. We read that Jesus, or verse 8 rather. We'll go jump down to verse 8. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. 
We find Jesus defining himself. He is the beginning and the end. All that there is. He's present with us, but he was way before we are, and he's going to be way after, and he's coming again. He's almighty. He's over time. He's eternal. There's nothing that surprises him. He's not constantly learning about humankind. He knows where things are going. Over time, enters time in such a beautiful way to encounter your life and mine. This is the amazing king who's come from the beginning and the end He is over all. If we live, if you want to think of it this way, we live basically in a 2D reality. And then God, because of who he is, is in a 3D reality. He sees things we can't. He navigates the world in a way we can't even fathom. The only thing we can understand about God because he is so high and wholly other is what he has chosen to reveal to us in his word. That's how amazing our God is. He is the Alpha and the Omega, who was, who is, and who is to come, the Almighty. Jump up to verse 5, we see Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. He has revealed to us faithfully what we need to know. This is a, a revelation to the world that he's given us exactly what we need to know. He's the firstborn of the dead. He's blazed the trail where no one else can go, who nowhere else, no one else would go. He's gone to death. He holds the power of life in his hands, and he defeated death, and he comes to offer us this eternal life that's indestructible. And then he's the ruler of kings on earth there in verse 5. He's over every politician's promises, every crooked reality in which we experience power being distorted. Jesus is over all of that, and his promises of hope will come to pass. And in the midst of all of his power, just once again, Jesus is defining himself, all of this power, all of this grandeur, over all of history. He will bring the victory. And what does he do? Look to the last part of verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. We have a God. We have a king. We have a person in Jesus who has power beyond our framework of imagination. And what does he do with that power? Not to abuse, not to lord it over. He comes and he dies through the shedding of his blood on the cross. And he leverages all the power of the universe to win us back. If we will see him for who he says he is. This is our king. This is Jesus. And he invites us into an ancient kind of living that he's designed for us at the very beginning of time. Life And life to the full, the life we were designed to live. And what's so fascinating, above the words on the page is John's testimony. Remember the guy who's writing all this down. Remember, he met Jesus when Jesus basically first stepped onto the scene. He came with his questions, his concerns, and his doubts, wondering if Jesus really is the promised one of Israel. How God had been working all the way back through Abraham to bring up a nation, to therefore send his son for the redemption, not just of Israel, but through Israel for the world. Is this the one that's come to bring his kingdom and to make all wrongs right? Is this the one who will crush the head of the serpent? And then he watched as Jesus was crucified in front of him as he stood next to Jesus' mom, Mary, and held on to her. 
and watched Jesus breathe his last. And then three days later, John, among others, were able to touch the resurrected Jesus and feel the scars in his flesh and say, I have seen him with my eyes and I come with the testimony of the truth of what I have experienced. And no matter what came, he could only but speak of Jesus, of who he is, of who he saw, of how Jesus defined himself to him. Such that even when all the Roman Empire said, you are a fool, and discounted him and removed him to the island of Patmos, he said, I will hold fast to my king because I know where history is going. Nothing. Nothing could stop John when he saw Jesus as Jesus said he was. Okay, so I said there are two reasons why churches often fail people. <laughs> the first reason is because churches, churches fail people when they don't help people see Jesus for who Jesus says he is. The second reason churches, people, people, churches fail people isn't because of the church, it's because of us as people. It's because sometimes we come into church and we don't want to see Jesus for who he says he is. We walk into these doors and we expect off the pages of Scripture someone else, someone other. We come in wanting a product rather than a person. We come in wanting comfort but wanting to distance a king. We come in wanting forgiveness but also wanting our space so we can do our own thing. Go back to that initial question. Imagine... And this is a powerful component to understand what we're looking for in our life. Imagine Jesus were to come into this church, or he would break into your work where you're worshiping on Monday. What image comes to your mind of Jesus? Is he the guy who shows up a little bit late, who's the life of the party? Hey, I mean, he hung out with drunkards and sinners. This guy was always on it, right? Or is he also, as we see in the book of Revelation, someone who comes in on a white stallion ready to bring down justice in an unjust world where the, the hooves of the horse are covered in blood? Is this Jesus, the one, when, when you think of someone stepping onto the scene, is he someone who's always there to pay your bills? Or is he also the parent who comes in reprimanding the child for stealing? Is this Jesus... Is he like a Santa Claus who's just ready to laugh, love, and give you a big warm hug? Is he also pointing you down the way of life even when it hurts? You see, Jesus is so much bigger than our simple complex, our simple frameworks for him. He's both just and gracious. He's Lord over all and yet simultaneously a man of sorrows. Who do you want? Because we cannot have his kingdom without him as king. That's not who Jesus is. That's never how he's portrayed himself to be. You're not coming in to get a product and walk away from the king. You see, if we want to be a church for the end of the world, we have to hear Jesus out. We have to let and see Jesus for who he says he is. And then thirdly, we got to serve the king. Period. There have only always been two paths in life. They show up again and again and again throughout the history revealed in Scripture. And right here we find them. We find the path of blessing, which is verse 3, right? Those who hear, receive, 
and keep what Jesus has revealed. This is the path of blessing. Now, it's not a path where you earn it because you've kept certain rules. No, 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 no. It's always a path of surrender. That's different. God's unconditional love spoken through Christ, but now it's a path of surrender. That's one path. And then there's the path of wailing, which is verse 7, where all the tribes of the earth will wail. They'll mourn at the return of Christ. Why? Because they rejected what Jesus said. And when you reject What Jesus has said, you have not just rejected a few words, you have rejected the edict of the king of the universe, and that is treason deserving of death. And you reject his words, you reject him. See, if you want to be on the right side of history, this is the message. It's meant to be a comfort to those who are holding fast to Jesus and a sober warning to those who want to do their own thing and deceive themselves as if they're following Jesus but just trying to get a product. If you want to be on the right side of history, we cannot be Jesus' advisors. We need to be his subjects, obedient to his will. And we see that right here at the beginning in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. What is this and who is this revelation given to? What does God make known and who does he make it known to? His servants. Do you see that? Servants. That becomes the designation of the church. When John designates himself, he designates himself as a servant. He's not the king of his kingdom. He's not the master of his own destiny. He's a servant such that all of his will, his motivations, his desires, his actions submit to the king. That's what it means to follow Jesus and to trust him. I've heard a pastor tell of it this way and it brings it home as a parent when I'm talking to my kids and I tell them hey I want you to clean your room right maybe some of you have heard this you know I tell Ava and Israel it's time to clean your room and when you come down when you're done cleaning your room we can have breakfast together okay it'll just take a couple minutes and I'll go downstairs and start making breakfast this is a real scene that has happened in my house just by the way and they'll come down and I'll say well is your room clean are you ready to go now if they say you know We heard you, Dad. You said clean your room. We talked about it a lot. We're like, oh, what is that going to look like? How is this going to take shape? We prayed about it and thought, man, you know, I know you said clean your room, but we started really just praying about it. And at the end of the day, we felt really convicted that we're just not going to do it. (laughs) Not only is that ridiculous and how we sometimes approach God's word, (laughs) as a parent, I even wonder if they heard me. I'm like, did you even hear what I said? This is not a negotiation. This isn't where we're trying to figure out our own path. No, clean your room, then you get breakfast. Okay, you know, like that's that's the reality in which when we approach Jesus. So why, why serve this king? It goes back to how Jesus has revealed himself. All power beyond our imagination, and he leverages all that power to make a way of reconciliation out of his great love for us, if that's what he'll do for us to begin the relationship, what will stop him from pursuing our best in every avenue of our life if we will but submit and surrender, even if it feels like death in the moment? That's why. That's why John, even though he's on the island of Patmos experiencing suffering and ostracization, is willing to say, Jesus is Lord, and he will have the victory. If we want to be a church 
for the end of the world, we have to hear Jesus out where he can be found and where he has spoken and where he has taken the initiative to reveal his will. We need to see Jesus for who he says he is and then we need to serve him. And as simple as that is, we've got a long way to go. All of us, right? That sounds simple enough. But there's a reason that there are seven letters given to seven different churches. And the complexity and the nuance of these different churches is something that's going to be refining for every one of us. Because even as we see next week, we need a grander vision for who Jesus is. And he gives that to us. We need a better understanding and better guidance on how to serve him. And he gives that to us. But what can we do today to kind of set us up for this eight-week journey? Okay, so here's what I want to do. I want to give two commitments to hear Jesus out. For many of us, they're going to be recommitments, and that's okay. But they're going to be really important if we're ever going to be a church for the end of the world, a church that expects Jesus and looks forward to hearing well done, good and faithful servants, right? Here they are. The first one is to open here. Now, for those of you who've been around Christ community, that's not new language, but hopefully it's a re-engagement of old language. By that I mean we shouldn't be starting our days off with speculation. We need to start our days off with information. What has God spoken? Have you you made the space and the time to hear where God has taken the initiative to reveal his word to us? And there are two different ways you can actually find some help in this process. One is you can sign up online through our website for a little thing called Open Here that'll send you an email every day like clockwork. And on that, we'll have two different links. One can be to read scripture. The other can be to hear it. So if you're driving and you just want to listen to scripture, that could be a helpful tool for you. I will say this. I had a conversation with someone last week and they said, you know, I get the email. I look at it in the morning and then I just kind of like look away and delete it. (laughs) So don't make it don't make it the daily guilt, you know, like make it the daily bread, right? Like, so just take a couple extra minutes and instead of swiping to delete it, click it and listen to it. Whatever that next baby step and having God's word speak into your life so you can hear Jesus out on a daily basis. Let him speak as he's already spoken into your life. The other way you can do that is in the little monthly update, there's a little tear off, ta- little tear off tab for open here. Okay, so you can follow along there and we're already in the book of Revelation. So just jump right on in, right? Right there on the list, we're already smack dab in the middle. I think tomorrow is Revelation 11. So get ready for the whirlwind. So it's going to be a good one. Um, So first, open here. Make it a daily commitment. And then secondly, be here. If you'll notice, these seven letters are written to seven churches, not seven individuals. If you look across the New Testament, all the letters are written to either churches or leaders of local churches. Because the Christian life was never a solo expedition. It's never just a me and Jesus. I'm fine by myself. I'm going to go about it the way I want. No, that is not a sign of health. That's a sign of destruction and death across the pages of the New Testament. And frankly, across the pages of the whole of Scripture. Being isolated from the people of God leads to death, destruction, and half the time we don't even realize it. So make a commitment to be here, the place where God has entrusted his word to be proclaimed so that we can hear from Jesus together, be sharpening one another, keeping each other accountable, and pursuing the real Jesus together. That's our heart's cry. That's why we preach from this book. And I don't open C.S. Lewis every week, even though he's brilliant. It's like, C.S. Lewis, chapter 5. No, like, no. It's from Scripture. 
because what God has spoken uniquely here for us together. Jesus is speaking, y'all. It's not an imaginative tale to think of what it might be like if Jesus were to show up. He's here, and he's communicating his presence through his word by the power of his spirit as he's seated on the throne in heaven. Let's continue to hear him out. Let's continue to let Jesus define himself and what he believes is good for his church. Because we need a grander vision of Jesus.